Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Lisa Feldman Barrett. Prior to that, though, wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. It's where you can go to hear all previous episodes and subscribe to the show via Apple, Spotify, and plenty of other podcast platforms. And give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at BooksOnPod. This is Dan Lieberman. I'm author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. And I've totally enjoyed this great conversation. Hello, readers. Lisa Feldman Barrett is one of the most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She conducts much of her work at Northeastern University, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Harvard Medical School. She was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience in 2019 and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and the Royal Society of Canada. As an author, she's written two books, the bestseller, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Her most recent, which is accurately described on her website as the world's first neuroscience beach read, is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Lisa, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. As the title suggests, you offer up seven and a half lessons for the brain. Why the half? <laughs> well, anyone who knows me really well will tell you it's because I like to be different. <laughs> and, you know, most people wouldn't write a book called Seven and a Half Lessons About Anything. But the actual reason is that, well, I mean, that might be an actual reason. But another reason is that the original book was Seven Lessons. And the first lesson was really about brain evolution, and it was too long. And so one of my test readers suggested breaking off a part, the part about why do we have brains and where do they come from, into its own essay. And I thought, eight lessons about the brain is boring. And anyways, this isn't really an entire lesson about evolution. It's just one little part. So I thought this is truth in advertising. It really is seven and a half. Did our brains evolve to think, which is obviously a widely held belief by people? Not really, not to the best of our knowledge. So in in neuroscience, scientists often take a characteristic that is very valued by the people in their culture and elevate it to an important scientific status. And I think that's what's happened with thinking and rationality. We think about this as something that our species does particularly well relative to other species. But it turns out that even though that's the case, if you look back in evolutionary time, that's not really why brains evolved. I mean, it's always a guess why brains evolved. Scientists are always guessing why this is the case. We can't really say for sure. But what we can do is look at the evolutionary record and also look at the structure of brains. And when scientists do that, they figured out that brains evolved. Their most important job in evolving was to control the systems of your body. You have a very complicated body right now. You're not aware of that. I hope, you know, if you're sitting quietly talking to me as are most of our listeners are probably, you know, their bodies are probably quiet as they're listening but actually inside everybody's, each person's body is a whole drama going on of a whole symphony of parts that have to be coordinated. And so that's a brain's most important job. And everything it does, thinking, seeing, feeling, it does in the service of that regulation. And that's 
not really how we experience ourselves in each and every moment. That's not how we experience every emotion, every instance of love or every hug we get or every insult we bear. But that is what is happening under the hood. And we're talking about the half lesson right now titled Your Brain is Not for Thinking. Is what you were just describing, is that what allostasis is? It is indeed. Allostasis is, the technical definition is the brain's attempt to anticipate the needs of the body and meet those needs before they arise. So every cell in your body needs glucose and water and salt and oxygen and so on. And so those resources have to be shuttled around and shared and allocated as needed. So for example, when your brain is going to stand you up, it doesn't wait to stand you up and then raise your blood pressure because if that happened, there wouldn't be enough oxygen that could make it to your brain and you'd faint. And that's, you know, kind of a metabolically costly thing <laughs> to have to recover from whatever bones you break or muscles you hurt. So your brain stands you up and at the same time, it's raising your blood pressure in anticipation of the stand so that oxygen gets to its destination the way it needs to. Lesson number one is you have one brain, not three. Now, Plato believed, as you point out at the start of this chapter, that the human mind is a constant battle between three inner forces that control behavior, and that is survival instincts, emotions, and rational thought. Evolutionary scientists, Lisa, have taken and run with that, claiming that the human brain has three layers, one for survival, one for feeling, and the third for thinking, known as the triune brain. Why is the idea of the triune brain wrong? Well, the best evidence that comes from peering deep into the molecular structure of cells and the genes within cells makes it really clear that brains didn't evolve like sedimentary rock with layers. So it's not the case that a lizard brain evolved in lizards and then on top of that, a separate layer for emotion evolved. And then on top of that, a separate layer for rationality evolved. That's really not how brains evolved. That's not what the molecular genetics indicates. And it's really not how brains function. And do neurons come into play here, too, in dispelling the triune brain theory? Well, when I say that we look into the molecular structure of cells, I'm speaking about the molecular structure of neurons. So your brain is made up of 128 billion neurons, give or take, which are brain cells. And then there are another, I can't remember, I think 60 or somewhere between 60 and 80 billion helper cells or glial cells, which... Sometimes people refer to these as the dark matter of the brain because scientists aren't really sure. We're, we're just learning all these really fascinating things that glial cells can do, including exchange information with each other, not electrically like neurons do, but nonetheless, they do some pretty miraculous things. But it's the genes with inside neurons that reveal that the brain didn't evolve in three parts. This is uh, one of the more interesting things that I learned in reading this book. Neurons are genetically similar between humans and other animals from different species, obviously. So how did our brains become so different from these other animals then? 
Well, in some ways, our brains aren't that different. It depends on which animal you're talking about. And it's a very complicated, what seems like one question is actually three or four different questions. So I'll just say to begin with that all brains on this planet that belong to a vertebrate animal, an animal with a backbone, are strikingly similar in many, many ways. And one way in which they're similar is that there are some very, very, very old genes. Actually, there are some very old genes that exist that our brains share with even fly brains and other insect brains and non-vertebrate brains. So the kind of the organization or layout, I guess I would say, the layout of the brain is similar across all of these species because we have these very ancient genes called Hox genes, which set out the organization of the brain. They're kind of like GPS signals for where neurons migrate to when a brain is setting itself up during embryonic development. But all mammal brains, at least for every mammal who's been studied, develop from the same manufacturing plan. So it's exactly the same developmental plan of over 200 steps and every brain that belongs to an, a mammal, so you and your dog and your cat and rodents and so on, cows and, and tigers and so on, all of these animals, including you, have the same brain plan. And there's 200 plus steps. Those steps occur in exactly the same order. It's just that each step runs for a shorter or a longer time. And that means that whatever neurons are being produced at that time or whatever whatever development is taking place, more of it will happen because the stage is running for longer. And this produces brains that can, to the naked eye, look very different, even though their parts are very similar when you peer into the molecular workings of the neurons. So neuron production time in the cerebral cortex takes longer in humans than it does in rats, which is longer than reptiles. So what, what you're essentially saying is that our brains aren't necessarily more evolved than animals. They're differently evolved from other animals. Exactly. And this is something that is, you know, I think it's hard to believe for a lot of people because we look at the kinds of things that we can do and we can, you know, humans do miraculous things, both good and bad, <laughs> <laughs> miraculous things, right? And we look at other animals and we compare other animals to us and, you know, they just don't measure up. And in fact, we often refer to other animals as lower or higher on some kind of scale based on how similar we perceive those animals to be to us. But other animals are pretty miraculous in their own way, and some of them have amazing capabilities that the human brain doesn't have. And actually, some of them have amazing capabilities that we endow our superheroes with. So evolution didn't aim itself towards us. We are not the most miraculous creature on the planet. We are just one type of miraculous creature in a menagerie of miraculous creatures. Yeah, we may get into some of those superhero qualities a little bit later in the conversation. But first, I wanted to ask you about how our brain's ability to budget, how does that affect our heightened rational behavior? Well, the way that I explain allostasis, 
this technical term meaning how your brain is predictively controlling your body and coordinating all the parts in your body to make things work smoothly and, and efficiently. I describe this metaphorically as body budgeting, that your brain is budgeting not money, but salt and glucose and oxygen and water and so on to keep you alive and well. And your brain is, you could think about your brain's body budget as having opportunities for deposits and withdrawals. So when you sleep, that's a deposit. When you eat healthfully, that's a deposit. When you get a hug from someone else or you're around somebody supportive, it actually allows your brain to work more metabolically efficiently. So in a sense, it's a net gain. So you can think of it as a deposit in a figurative way. And you know, withdrawals would be things like exercise or moving your body, anything which requires you to burn glucose, including learning something new. In fact, the two most expensive things your brain can do is move your body or, or learn something new. So your brain's always running a budget for your body. It's always maintaining allostasis to the best of its ability. And at the same time, your body is always sending sense data back to your brain. It indicates the consequences of the changes going on inside your body. So your lungs are expanding or, you know, your heart is beating, so on and so forth. And we experience this constant stream of sense data as simple feelings of feeling pleasant or feeling unpleasant, feeling worked up or feeling calm. This is what people call mood or what a scientist like me would call affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, affect. And these affective feelings are always with you all the time. They're not emotions. They sometimes can be transformed into emotions, but they're always with you all the time. Your brain is always regulating your body. Your body is always sending sense data back to your brain. You always have feeling, whether it's in the foreground or the background. That means rationality cannot be the absence of feeling, which is how we usually define it. And what it means is that feeling is with you every waking moment of your life. So rationality has to be characterized in some other way. And one way that scientists think about rationality is it's not the absence of affect or the absence of feeling or the absence of emotion. It's really whether your investment of resources is going to have a good return on that investment. So for example, you make a big metabolic outlay, you exercise, right? And as long as you replenish what you've spent, that's a really good investment in a future healthy brain. So that was a very rational thing to do. Lesson number two is your brain is a network. There are a lot of metaphors regarding how the brain works, but the bottom line is that it's a network, a collection of parts that connect and function as one. The network of the human brain is made up of around 128 billion neurons, a number that you mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation. Do you have a good, simpler way to explain to the layman just how these neurons come together to act as one? Yes, in the book... The metaphor that I use is air travel around the world. So 
the neurons that make up our brain are not soldered together. They're not literally connected to one another. They communicate with one another via electrical signals and chemicals, but they're not literally touching each other. And any given neuron can receive information from a couple of thousand neurons and send information to a couple of thousand other neurons. So there are lots of paths for information to get from one place to another in the brain. You can use multiple pathways of different populations or different sets of neurons. In the same way, this is you know, how when we use air travel, this was like pre-COVID times, right? When we actually all used to fly <laughs> all over the place. If I wanted to fly to London, England, I could fly direct or I could fly to, you know, I live in Boston, so I could fly direct there or I could fly to New York and then from one of the New York airports fly to London or I could fly to Chicago and O'Hare and then fly to London or to another European airport and then to London. There were lots of ways for me to get where I was going. And that's really gives our air travel system a lot of flexibility so that if one airport is down, like New York or O'Hare, there are other ways to get where you need to go. Same thing is true for your brain. If information needs to get from one part of your brain to another part of your brain, as long as there are multiple paths to get there, multiple sets of neurons to um, transfer that information, then even if there's a problem with one set, the information will still get where it needs to go. But more importantly, in your brain, not every neuron is connected to every other neuron. That would be really too expensive for your brain to manage. That would just be metabolically really, really expensive. So instead, your brain has this really interesting organization of hubs. So all neurons are connected to a couple of hub regions in your brain that are regions that are densely, densely connected, both to various neurons around the brain, but also to each other. So there's kind of like a backbone of collections of neurons called nodes, which receive a lot of information and pass a lot of information. They're kind of like choice points in a sense. And this is also how our air travel system is set up. There are airports in New York, O'Hare Airport, London, Heathrow. These are hubs, they're airport, air travel hubs. You know, so if I want to fly to Lincoln, Nebraska, there's probably not a direct flight from Boston to Lincoln, Nebraska, but I could probably fly through a hub to get there. And so hubs make a very, very complex system much more efficient to manage. On the other hand, when a hub goes down, the system is really encumbered because it means lots and lots and lots of either information, if you're talking about the brain or airplanes, if you're talking about air travel, will be disrupted. Why do you think of when we remember something, it's more like this network assembling that memory versus just recalling a straight memory? Well, that's what evidence shows for the last, I guess, 20 or 30 years. I think it's been pretty well known that memories are not stored in your brain like files are stored in a file drawer. What your brain is doing when it's remembering something is it's reassembling 
an experience that has occurred in the past. That is, it's taking on a pattern of connectivity that it has had in the past, which just means that the neurons are speaking to one another with the same pattern as in the past. And that's what it means to remember something. That reassembly or re-implementation of the past may or may not be associated with a feeling of remembering, but that's really what your brain is doing all the time. Just like with so many other parts of this book, as soon as I read your explanation of it, it makes so much sense. Moving on to lesson three now, little brains wire themselves to their world. You write about how the evolution of a baby's brain is not a matter of nature versus nurture as much as it is nature that requires nurture. That is, the genetic makeup present at birth is then shaped by the surrounding environment. Babies' brains become more complex through tuning and pruning. What are those two things? Well, pruning is when connection is not used, it's lost. So remember I said the brain is really expensive. Actually, your brain is your most expensive organ. It costs about 20% of your your whole metabolic budget. So it's a pretty expensive organ. And so if you're not using a connection to capture some kind of information in the world, then your brain basically gets rid of it. It's not killing neurons. It's sort of absorbing the bushy ends of neurons. So a neuron usually has bushy ends at both ends. Actually, it's got sort of bushy branches at both ends. One looks, you can think more like an arbor of a tree and the other looks more like roots of a tree. And so what it does is it absorbs some of those back because they're not really being used. Tuning, on the other hand, means that when a connection is used, it's actually beefed up. So the branches might get thicker or the roots might get more numerous or the trunk of the neuron, which is, it's called an axon, that the neuron sends an electrical signal down so that it can release chemicals at the roots and talk to other neurons, that has a a kind of a bark, a fatty bark called myelin. That might get thicker to allow the neuron to fire more quickly. But any of these ways that can beef up a neuron's connection to other neurons is called tuning. And what it means is that you become more expert in processing or dealing with whatever information that those neurons typically deal with. So you might be able to notice something faster, or you might be able to make finer grain distinctions between things than somebody who wasn't tuned along that for that kind of information. So for example, I can distinguish between lots of different categories of color, you know? So for me, there isn't just blue and green and red. There are all sorts of fine grain distinctions between aqua and royal blue and forest green and so on. Whereas for my husband, he's got a couple of color categories. So my brain is really tuned for color. His, you know, a lot of the connections that would allow those distinctions have been pruned away, but his brain is really tuned for music he can hear all kinds of distinctions and details in music that I really can't hear. I mean, I can still keep up with the beat and so on, but 
I can't really tell the difference between a really virtuosic guitar player and somebody mm. who's just okay. <laughs> and so for me, those connections have been pruned away. Considering how important the caregiver is in the development of a young brain, was your husband exposed to music at a much earlier age than you were? It's possible that he was. It's possible that he was exposed to a variety of music that I wasn't. It's also possible that he interacted with music, right? So it's not just the listening of music. It's also the playing of music or the tapping out a beat to music. He started engaging in music games with himself, like he would play games with music when he was really at a very young age. Where he learned to do that, I actually don't really know, but I do know that he started playing music games with our daughter really when she was very little. Hmm. And she has, she's a drummer now, actually, a, a heavy metal drummer, and she <laughs> she's incredible. She can just listen to a song on the radio and intuit the drum part. Wow. And just play along, having only heard the song once. So her brain is definitely tuned for percussion. You really emphasize the importance of caregivers in the nurturing or development of young brains. What happens when infants, toddlers, and even young children don't receive the proper social stimuli from caregivers? Yeah, so... Little brains are born under construction. They're born not fully formed. And they wire themselves to their world, to their physical world, and also to their social world. So for example, if a little infant brain is not exposed, a little infant isn't exposed to light at a critical period, if light doesn't hit the retina, through the eye. And if that light doesn't make its way to the brain, then the visual system of that brain will not develop normally and the child will never see normally. And there are lots and lots and lots of examples like this, that, you know, the brain is wiring itself to its world. It's picking up the statistical regularities in the world, the sights and sounds and smells and so on that are regularly going with each other in the world. For example, babies have to learn to be able to see a face. They're not born knowing that a face is a face, but all faces for typical people have certain similarities to them, right? The eyes, there are two eyes, they're in a particular location in relation to each other. They might, some might be wide, some might be narrow, but they're in the same general vicinity to one another and in relation to this hole, which keeps opening and closing and sounds keep coming out of, which is your mouth. And so babies very quickly learn what is regular about their world and what is unusual starting at birth. And it happens really, really quickly, but it's not just the physical world that it's important to a human infant. It's also the social world. And this I think came as a great surprise to scientists that the amount of eye contact that you make with a baby, the amount that you hold the baby or are responsive to the baby, the amount that you talk to the baby, all of these things actually matter to the baby's wiring. So we all knew that it was important how we treat our children. I think it's just surprising to people, certainly it was surprising to me, just how much it matters. And that really your job as a caregiver is to manage that baby's body budget. It's really to 
maintain allostasis in that baby's body because the baby's brain isn't equipped to do it. And that everything that you do is really teaching that baby's brain how to regulate itself. I don't know that when I was nursing my daughter or when I would wake up in the middle of the night when she would wake up or any of the, I didn't, I don't know that I thought about, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm taking care of her. I'm maintaining allostasis. I'm maintaining her body budget so that I'm teaching her brain what to do. But in effect, that is what's happening. Lesson number four is your brain predicts almost everything you do. How is memory, and I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how is memory a major component in what we experience through our five senses? Well, the way to think about this, I think, the easiest way to understand it, at least for me, is to try to look at the situation from your brain's perspective. Your brain is trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull. And for your whole life, it's receiving a stream of sense data from the world, like changes in the frequency of light, which becomes vision, and changes in the air pressure, which becomes sound, and changes in chemicals, which becomes smell and taste and so on. And these changes, this sense data, are the outcomes of some set of causes in the world. So something's happened and there's been changes in the sense data and these sense data arrive to your brain. But your brain doesn't know what the causes are. It only has access to the effects, the outcomes. So how does it know? How does it know when it hears a loud bang? How do you know? Is that a door slamming? Is that a box dropping? Is that a car backfiring? Is that a gunshot? How do you know what that sound is? What caused it? And similarly, your brain is also receiving all sorts of sense data from your body, from body budgeting, from allostasis, the effects of allostasis. And so what is that tug in your chest or that ache in your gut or that gurgle in your stomach? What caused it? Your brain doesn't know. It only has access to the effects, to the outcomes. This is what philosophers call a reverse inference problem, or sometimes they'll call it an inverse inference problem. You only know the outcomes, but you have to guess at the causes. And so your brain has one other source of information available to it to guess, and that is your memory. So your brain figuratively speaking, can ask itself, the last time I was in a situation like this, where I was faced with this array of sense data, what caused it? What did I do next? And what did I feel next? And what did I see next? And what did I, right? So it's asking itself, in my past, what was similar to the present moment? And it's using that memory, essentially, to make guesses about what to do next, and what you will experience next. So memory is the source of your actions and also your experience of yourself in the world. The neuroscientist Gerald Edelman wrote about the use of memory. He called your experience right now 
the remembered present. Even you, a renowned neuroscientist, admit to perpetual amazement over what happens after the brain issues these predictions and then checks them against the sense data coming in from the world and our bodies. So what is it that wows you? <laughs> well, there's so much about what wows me. <laughs> I mean, there. So the first thing that I find really just amazing is that I don't know about you, but I experience myself in the world reacting to stuff. Like I see something or I hear something and then I react to it. I do something, right? So seeing comes first, hearing comes first, and movement comes second. But actually, when you look at how the brain is functioning, when your brain is remembering something, and of course, it's all happening very automatically and effortlessly, and you have no awareness that this is happening, but your brain's first aspect of memory is what to do next. So your brain is actually first preparing an allostatic change, a body budgeting change inside your body. And it's then preparing a motor, a set of motor movements so that you can pick up something or run or sit or whatever motor movement is going to have you do. That's what happens first. It's the preparation for movement inside the body and in the world. And as a consequence of that, your brain is preparing what you will see and what you will hear and what you will feel and so on. So like the last time that your brain prepared these movements for your body, what did you hear next? What did you see next? What did you feel next? And it's actually preparing these experiences to happen. So the first thing that is amazing to me is that action comes first and experience comes second. It's you experience it. I experience it the other way around. But that's amazing to me, actually. And in uh, my first book, How Emotions Are Made, I explained how this works by explaining how a baseball player can swing at a ball from a pitcher. If the baseball player waited to see the ball before he started to swing, he would never be able to mount a motor movement fast enough to hit the ball. His brain is starting to make the movement, starting to prepare the movement by predicting where the ball is going to be in a moment from now and preparing to swing at that spot. And as a consequence, his brain is preparing itself to see the ball at that spot. So when I say the brain is preparing what it's going to see, what it's going to hear, I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, this is the other really amazing thing, right? That your brain, what it's doing is actually, it's changing the firing of its own neurons. So it's starting to prepare the experience. It's actually changing the firing of its own neurons so that you are prepared to see something. You are prepared to hear something. You're prepared to feel something specific. And then the other thing, which I find really maybe the most surprising thing of all is that, okay, so let's say you're playing baseball and your brain is preparing based on your past experiences of playing baseball and maybe all the times you've watched baseball on television or watched a baseball game and based on, you know, the state of your body and so on and who the pitcher is and maybe what the weather conditions are. You know, your brain's using all this information and it's making a prediction about what you need to do next. So what are the heart rate changes? What are the respiratory changes? What are all these changes? And where do you need to swing at the ball? And then it's preparing you to see the ball at a particular spot. And so let's say the ball materializes at that spot. 
your brain's comparing the incoming sense data to its predictions and they match, there's a match. And so your body is already prepared to swing at the bat, swing at the ball, and it does. It's so the motor pattern is released and you swing at the ball with your bat. But the really, really amazing thing is that there's nothing in the experience of that ball, of seeing that ball or feeling the clunk of the bat against the ball and hearing it and so on. There's nothing in that experience that's new. Your brain was already predicting what you would see, what you would hear, what you would feel. And all the sense data from the bat hitting the ball does, all of the sense data coming from the visual image of the ball, all it's doing is confirming the prediction that's already there. <laughs> so no new information is coming from the world. In that instance, when your brain predicted correctly, the entire experience is constructed in your head. That's so cool. Lesson number five is we regulate each other's body budgets. How do those around us influence the rewiring of our adult brains? Well, in exactly the way that we influence the wiring of our children's brains, except children's brains are incredibly plastic. So the wiring and wiring changes, the tuning and pruning happens very, very quickly relative to an older brain like yours or mine. But it's exactly the same, same set of processes. They just happen at a slower pace. You know, humans did not evolve as a species to run their own body budgets alone. We are the caretakers of each other's nervous systems. We regulate each other's nervous systems without even knowing it. We metaphorically can make deposits or withdrawals into each other's body budgets, and we do it all the time. The best thing for a human nervous system is another human. And the worst thing for a human nervous system is also another human. And while that can be accomplished in a variety of ways with actions, with human touch, it feels like that is most affected by words more than anything else. And back to an earlier portion of our conversation where you referenced the superpower abilities of other animals. Animals can regulate each other's body budgets through all sorts of crazy means. Rats and mice can communicate by smell. Primates use vision to regulate each other's nervous systems. And we as humans are pretty unique because we can use words. Why are words so powerful for humans? Well, Trey, if I tell you that I had pizza for dinner last night, what goes through your mind? Like, what are you imagining? I'm imagining a double pepperoni pizza that I had over the weekend that I ate too much of, but boy, was it good. <laughs> right. So let's think about it. With a single word, pizza, I've been able to conjure in your brain a bunch of features like what the pizza looked like, what the pizza smelled like, what the pizza tasted like. Your pizza had pepperonis. Did it have cheese? It did. And now my mouth is watering, Lisa. Exactly. Exactly. And why is your mouth watering? Your mouth is watering because your brain is 
preparing your body <laughs> right to receive it's preparing your body to um to uh, it's changing the firing of its own neurons to receive pizza but with a single word i can communicate 5 10 15 different features now not all of them have to be the same if i say I had pizza for dinner and my pizza was a thin crust and maybe yours was a little thicker. Or if you lived in Chicago, maybe it was a deep dish pizza. There is opportunity for communication, but generally speaking, a single word can conjure a set of features. And many of those features have a physical effect on your body. You know, I can text three little words to my friend who lives in the Netherlands halfway around the world. And I can change her breathing. I can change her heart rate. I can change her body temperature, her metabolism. People can pick up a book from thousands of years ago, the Bible or the Quran or a beautiful poem and read words that were written by humans they will never know, long dead, and have a physical reaction to what they're reading. The reason why this happens is that the regions of the brain that are really important for processing language, your ability to speak and understand these sounds and make them meaningful, are exactly the same regions, many of them, that regulate your body, your heart, your lungs, your metabolism, your immune system, and so on. And this is true in other animals as well. Like for example, in birds, the regions of the brain that are most important for a bird to be able to sing and communicate with other birds are also the regions that control the bird's body. So we can communicate with each other in lots of different ways. If you and I were in the same room and I slowed my breathing, you probably would slow your breathing if we were getting along well and we trusted each other you know, if I crossed my legs or I put my hand on my chin, you might put your hand on your forehead or you might cross your ankles. We mirror each other's actions. We can communicate with all the senses that other animals do, but we also have this extra ability to affect each other through words and literally affect each other's nervous systems, literally affect body budgeting in each other just by the words that we speak to each other or that we read and write. Lesson six is brains make more than one kind of mind. You write that the human brain starts with a basic plan that can be wired in numerous ways to build different types of minds. It reminds me of how they put together an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, that basic structure, <laughs> and it can go pretty much anywhere from there. Yeah. I love this specific quote within lesson six. Brains have a lot of common features Minds less so. What do you mean by that? Well, if you take a bunch of human brains and you line them up, you'll see that on the surface, they pretty much look the same. They have the same kind of shape. Most neurotypical human brains have the same parts. The neurons are largely the same and the connectivity patterns, the way that they're arrayed together are structurally you know, somewhat the same, but the information that's wired into the connections between those neurons is very different, right? Brains wire themselves to their world and not just their physical world, but also their social world. So your brain and my brain could be very different because 
our worlds are different. Our bodies are different. Our experiences may have been different. So on the surface, you sort of just look at a brain with the naked eye, human brains look pretty similar to one another. But the differences are in the micro wiring of how the neurons are speaking to each other, the ease with which they're passing information back and forth, the type of information they're passing back and forth. All of this is very dependent on experience. What is acculturation and how does the brain handle it? Well, acculturation is basically pruning and tuning. You go to a culture that's very different from yours. And what your brain is going to attempt to do is use what it knows, right? Use your past experiences to try to make sense of what it encounters. Sometimes it can do this. Your brain has this really terrific ability Psychologists call it conceptual combination. Neuroscientists call it generativity. But basically what it means is your brain can take bits and pieces of past experience and combine it in new ways that you can understand and act in a new situation where you've encountered something that you've never encountered before. So for example, if you went to the Middle East and you were given a piece of let's say Georgian bread, it looks a little bit like a pizza without sauce with an egg on top. So what I've done there is conceptual combination. I just gave you some bits and pieces and I asked you to combine them in a new way. And not only can you combine it so that you could probably visualize it in your mind, you could probably anticipate what it tastes like and make a pretty good guess, meaning your, your neurons could prepare your body to eat it and digest it in a healthful way. But sometimes it's not possible to do that. Sometimes we encounter something that's so different. For example, you know, you might encounter a language that is not like your own. And therefore it to you, it sounds like just a bunch of noise. The sounds don't make any sense. So you are experientially blind to the meaning of the sounds. You don't even know where one word ends and another word begins, but with experience, you can learn that. So your brain is slowly tuning and pruning itself to learn new things. It's taking in new information that it couldn't predict based on memory. And that's really what acculturation is. And it's the ability to do it very, very quickly. So for example, If later on in this program or tomorrow or in a week from now, I tell you, Trey, that I had Georgian bread for dinner, I don't have to explain to you what that is. You've already learned it and now you have a word for it. And so now when I say the words Georgian bread, that conjures a set of features very efficiently in your brain and prepares you to act in a particular way. That's acculturation. And you've made my mouth water for the second time in this conversation. (laughs) The final lesson, lesson seven, is our brains can create reality. And this talks about our ability to create a social reality. Everything from city and street names to money and even words, something that is uniquely human. You and other scientists believe that we're able to do so because of the five C's. Creativity, communication, copying, cooperation, and compression. I understand the first four there, but how does compression fit in here? Well, do you know how an MP3 works? 
Yes, it's a compressed version of a WAV file. Exactly. And do you know how the WAV file is compressed? Do you know what information is kept and what is lost? There's an overall quality degradation that happens, but overall it doesn't degrade it enough that it means that the song is no longer listenable and it's significantly less in size to where it fits on something like an iPod or an iPhone or whatever the other music playing device is. Exactly. So when a computer or some piece of technology wants to compact information, what it does is it gets rid of all of the redundancies in the signal, all of the overlap in the signal, and it's able to compress. So basically you're sort of getting rid of similarities so that you have a very, very efficient, but maybe less detailed copy of the information. And this is what your brain is doing all the time, actually. So if you were to take the cerebral cortex, for example, which is the bumpy covering um, on the top of your brain, and if you were to pick it off the rest of your brain and stretch it out like a napkin and look at it, you would see that it, on one end, say near the back of the brain, there are these, your neurons are very, very small and not very well connected to each other, but there are many, many, many little, little, little neurons. And they're, they're representing little details of the visual world, these little neurons. And if you go all the way to the end of that sheet at the other end, that's the part that's at the front of the brain. And that part has honking big neurons, not that many of them, but very densely connected. So very few neurons, but they're very, very densely connected to each other. And so what your brain is doing, actually, as you take in new information that your brain wasn't able to predict, which we call learning, that's what learning is, the information is being compressed. The similarities in the signal that the neurons are picking up, it's all being removed till you get all the way to the front of the brain where it's highly compressed. And we refer to it as an abstraction. It's basically a low dimensional, like doesn't have very much information there, but it's kind of like the gist of what you just experienced. Seeing function rather than just physical form. Exactly. And so when your brain makes a prediction, it's reassembling that gist. And then it has to unpack that gist into its details. There's a cascade that goes from the front to the back. And the brain is having to infer those details because those details were compressed away when you learned the information. So basically, when your brain compresses something, let's say you experience one time eating pizza and another time Georgian bread and another time it's garlic bread, all of the differences, the details can be compressed out and they could all be described similarly as cheesy bread, let's say. Or for example, let's say you experienced a cat who is a a cute little kitten who's a pet or a lion in a zoo or a tomcat who's a really good mouser or a guy who's really aloof and really cool, like maybe the dude from the Big Lebowski, the film. All of those, even though they look different and they sound different and so on, they all could 
be compressed into a summary of cats with the function of being aloof and kind of cool or climbing a tree, climbing a set of stairs, metaphorically climbing a social ladder. All of those can be compressed into the concept ladder or climbing, even though their physical details or physical features are very, very different. So what compression allows us to do is to see similarities amongst things in terms of their function rather than in terms of their physical form. Now, in all the examples, in almost all of the examples I gave you, we're imposing a function on objects that they weren't designed necessarily to serve, okay? So for example, if I have a glass, I can drink out of that glass, I can put flowers in that glass and use it as a vase. I can throw a glass at someone as a weapon. I could use the glass as a paperweight. In all of those cases, I'm imposing a function on the glass, most of which the glass wasn't built to serve, but it can serve those functions because it has the physical form. In social reality, we're imposing functions on things that they don't have by virtue of their physical nature, but we're making up the function. We just make it up. So for example, we impose the function of currency on little pieces of paper and poof, we have money that we can trade for material goods. And the only reason why little pieces of paper serve as money is because we all agree to impose that function on that object, even though in the past we've imposed the function of currency on shells, on salt, on barley, on gold, on diamonds, on big rocks in the ocean that can't be moved. We also impose the function on make-believe things like mortgages, which is just a promise of payment in the future. We impose it on Bitcoin. We impose it on, you know, like an imaginary thing called Bitcoin, which is just electrical signals in some computer. So much of civilization is this kind of agreement amongst humans to impose a function on something and because we agree, poof, it has that function. And if we were to disagree, it wouldn't have that function anymore. So for example, one way to think about what's happening in the United States right now is that we have imposed a meaning on making a mark on a little piece of paper called a vote. And we've imposed this function and we've also imposed a function on voting as a means of choosing a leader, like a president. Now, some people believe that every person who's a citizen of the United States, if they make a mark on that piece of paper, that's a vote and their vote should count. And other people in the United States believe that only some marks on pieces of paper should count. And that's one way to think of one piece of what's happening right now. I use that example not lightly because I think that it's important to understand that democracy is social reality. And social reality, the things that give us social reality, our ability to communicate, our ability to communicate efficiently, our ability to copy each other, our ability to do all of these things, they can give us social reality or they can destroy it, right? 
And so what we have right now in the United States is we have two groups of people with very, very different social realities who are not talking to each other. So based on that, Lisa, that sets up perfectly for my final question. And this actually harkens back to lesson four. We're at a strange place in society right now where a lot of people are dug in on their beliefs and unafraid to take it out on the disagreeable world around them on social media and now sadly in public places as well. Do you have any advice for helping to create a perspective shift that might leave us less at one another's throats just because we don't necessarily agree with that other person? I do. I do, but I want to preface this by saying that you should approach what I'm about to say with an open mind. So here's what I'll say. Remember, your brain is running a budget for your body. And when your brain is running a deficit, you feel uncomfortable, you feel distressed, you feel unpleasant. It feels really bad. And when everything is copacetic in your body budget, you know, everything feels good. And you know, if you think about the time when you exercise, you exercise, you make a big metabolic outlay. I don't know about you, Trey, when I'm exercising, I feel like crap usually because, you know, I'm expending a lot of glucose. I'm drinking water, but when it's over, I might feel better. But while I'm doing it, I'm not always loving it. And that's a really important lesson because anything which is really hard is going to make you feel uncomfortable. And then you replenish after the fact you sleep, you drink, you eat, because maybe it was a good investment of your effort. If you start to run a persistent deficit in your body budget, let's say you're not sleeping enough. Let's say you have financial problems, which is really worrisome. Let's say you have, I don't know, a pandemic to deal with. Let's say your kids are at home all the time and you can't send them to school. There are many, many, many little reasons why you might be paying these little metabolic taxes throughout your day and they add up to a body budgeting deficit. That means you're gonna feel like crap. And you're gonna be looking around to the world to figure out why you're feeling that way. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm running a deficit in my actual bank account, I stop spending. What does it mean for a brain to stop spending? Well, it means you might not wanna move around as much, but it really means that you might not expose yourself to things that you don't like or can't predict very well because learning is expensive. When you're running a persistent deficit metabolically and you feel like crap, you are less likely to spend your time around other people who you can't predict very well because that's expensive. Why do we predict? Why do brains predict? Prediction occurs because it's more metabolically efficient. You want to reduce uncertainty. Uncertainty or ambiguity is really, really hard on a nervous system. It's really hard. So the thing that you do is you surround yourself with people who think like you, who are like you, and then you can predict exactly what they're going to say and what they're going to do. And part of the problem that we're in right now 
is not the whole problem, right? You have to avoid the need to attribute this to or understand this as like one or two big simple causes, right? There, It's like more like a perfect storm. So one reason we're in the situation that we're in right now is that if I had to design a cultural context that would bankrupt a human body budget, it would be ours, even before COVID, right? Just the way that we don't sleep enough, we don't eat healthily, most people don't exercise enough, we're on social media all the time, it's really, really ambiguous. I could go on and on and on, but basically, we're already in a cultural moment in time where we're paying a lot of metabolic taxes we can't afford. And then COVID happens. And also we have social media that only feeds us stuff Hmm. based on what we've already chosen to view. So the whole situation sets us up to be in these little silos and to never be exposed to information that would be different from what we already believe. And this is really dangerous. It's really dangerous because in these kinds of situations, we gravitate to things which are simple We avoid things which are complex. We avoid people who are different from us. We suspect people who we can't predict or don't understand their views very well. This kind of simple-minded thinking is what sets us up for authoritarian thinking or totalitarian thinking. It's what allows people to feel like they're willing to trade their freedom just to get a little security. Like today, in the New York Times, on the front page of the New York Times, there was one article about how people who stormed the Capitol were saying Trump asked them to do it. And right next to it was an article about how Republican lawmakers are claiming that it wasn't Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol, that actually it was other Black Lives Matter and Antifa or other, right? So right there, you've got two completely conflicting (laughs) stories about exactly the same event. And to a brain that's already encumbered, that's just chaos. And you just avoid it. You sort of stay in your safe space, talking to people who are like you. And by the way, what you're talking about speaks to this inability of people to truly gain control over their own self and surroundings by actually accepting responsibility. Exactly. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm saying that it's understandable what's happening. But if you understand what's happening, then you might use that understanding to choose to do something different. Like, Democracy requires diverse thinking. It requires an embrace of complexity. It demands that people argue with each other and struggle with other people's ideas. It's hard work. It's sometimes maddening. It will definitely feel uncomfortable, just like exercising feels uncomfortable. But this unease, this tolerating this discomfort in the same way that you you make an investment in feeling uncomfortable in the moment while you're exercising, you make an investment in having a healthier brain later, that's your investment. You're basically expending energy now and then replenishing so that you can have a healthier brain later. In the same way, the unease is also the price of a healthy democracy. The founding fathers of the United States understood that the comfort that comes from certainty and from believing simple stories is actually an unhealthy path to potentially authoritarianism or even totalitarianism. And so 
the United States was founded by building in checks and balances to encourage debate and compromise amongst diverse views. And that's what makes America great. So one thing that you can do to be a patriot and to really use what you've learned about how your brain works and how you are the caretakers of other people's nervous systems and vice versa is that you can engage with people whose beliefs are different from yours, not by storming the Capitol, not by using guns or other weapons on each other, not by hurling hateful words, but by really engaging with each other and talking about real issues. You don't have to embrace other people's viewpoints all the time. You just have to be willing to admit that there is an existence of diverse views and be curious about them. And there are ways to do this with people that you profoundly disagree with. So I'm not necessarily saying, oh, we have to find a center ground. We have to disregard the fact that when a group of people do something violent, that we have to ignore that. I'm not saying any of those things. I am saying, though, that it's possible to engage with people who are different from you, who have different beliefs from you, with curiosity instead of with suspicion and hate. And if you do that, you can treat it a little bit like exercising. It's going to be expensive. It's going to feel like crap, <laughs> but you might learn something about them or about yourself. And it will definitely move us out of the standoff that we're in right now. For example, many of the people who stormed the Capitol recently are people who really care about their country. They have deeply held beliefs about the value of the United States and concern for the United States. And the people who were harmed by those people and those of us who were incensed and also frightened by what we saw are also people who care a lot about the United States and <laughs> care about this country. Right there, you have something common, something in common with someone. What you believe might be different. The various values that you have might be different, but that one value, caring about the country and wanting things to be better is the same. I might disagree about how they went about it, but I can probably find common ground with those people just long enough if they use their words instead of using guns to actually have a conversation. And everything starts with having a conversation, right? Yeah. Sometimes the only commonality you can find with someone is that you both breathe oxygen <laughs> or that you both have kids or, you know, something really basic, but it's a start. And I'm not being a Pollyanna. There's really good evidence for various peacemaking programs that attempt to help people to have conversations with one another as a starting place for resolving deeply, deeply held disagreements. Look, I'm a neuroscience nerd, even though I'm a radio and podcast guy. And as much as I enjoyed you spreading your wings as a neuroscientist and seven and a half lessons about the brain, I think my favorite parts of your writing are when you take the neuroscience hat off in this book and put on your humanitarian hat and to share your opinions on certain things, that one included. So thank you very much for wrapping the conversation up with something that I think you and I both deem to be extremely important for the future of this country. 
Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I'll also say, Trey, thank you for broadcasting there for me something which I should have said, and that is when I'm speaking as a neuroscientist, my job really is to bring science to people. It's to invite people to think about what the science might mean for their lives. It's not really to tell them what to think. It's really just to invite them to think. And if I'm going to give an opinion as opposed to just relaying science, I usually try to broadcast I'm going to take my lab coat off now and tell you my opinion. And uh, that's what I did right there without broadcasting it first. So I really appreciate you bringing up the rear there. That was really helpful. She is Lisa Feldman Barrett, one of the most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She conducts much of her work at Northeastern, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Harvard Medical School. She was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience in 2019 and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and the Royal Society of Canada. As an author, she's written two books, the bestseller How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Her most recent, which is accurately described on her website as the world's first neuroscience beach read, is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Lisa, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening today. Books on Pod is where you can hear all of our episodes as well as subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.